right, well, we continue on. We're in Nehemiah chapter 9, talking about building the kingdom throughout Nehemiah. And tonight, we're going to be covering all 38 verses. Uh, about 32 of them are going to be in one big chunk. So if it starts slow, don't worry. We won't, we won't be here all night. Um, but we're going to be talking about kingdom confessions. When you think about confession, what comes to mind? How many of you think about like a Catholic confessional versus that? A couple of you? Yeah. Um, do you think positive or negative thoughts when you think confession? Negative thoughts. Like something went terribly wrong, right? Normally it's not thought of in a positive light. But uh, just like the word repentance, I think confession has uh, a bit of a bad rap. Like it's true that by definition to confess is to admit to sin, but it's also part of the definition that it's declarative. So you can declare positive things, things about God, things about who God is. Um, Some confession is good, right? I mean, think about the power of confession in our society. Look at um, young love, uh, just starting or uh, blossoming. You see uh, a profession or a confession of love for one another that uh, is the beginning of a love story. Or you think about confession in the context of marriage and a confession um, might end the marriage. Or a confession might heal the marriage. A prideful man's confession of his wrongdoing could bring great healing. Um, And a prideful man's confession of his wrongdoing might do destruction. Confession electrifies courtrooms. Jurors, judges, media, bystanders, they're all waiting. Investigators, they want that confession. If you have a confession, that's a game changer in a trial, right? And for you and I, as believers, we know that confession plays a huge role in that it separates kingdoms. That you can know all about the kingdom of God, but you are on the outside until you have faith. And with that faith, Romans 10 says, we confess that Jesus is Lord. So we confess our sin and our need for him, but we also have a positive declarative statement that he's Lord over our life, both in a negative way that we are sinners and positive way in that he is God. Both of them used together in one confession. We confess with our mouth. We confess with our hearts. We confess to God. James 5 says we confess to other believers. And we confess knowing that we're broken. And we confess knowing God is holy and he's perfect. And First John 1, 9 says that when we confess, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Confession has a huge deal. Um, it's a big deal in the life of believers. And it's not just an entry door into the faith but it's a lifestyle for those of us who are in the faith. But do we think about our confession? Do we confess? And what is it supposed to look like? I mean, the how, what, when, where, why. How often do we kind of dissect our confession? Or should we? We probably do it more than we realize, um, just not necessarily with God. Last night, Tara and I, we were talking, and Silas was sitting by me on the couch, and, you know, he's he, he's just like a little monkey. He's always jumping around and whatnot, and um, I don't know if he's trying to get my attention or if he's just being silly, but he smacked my arm, and even, you know, when you got kids, and you're like, okay, I'm physically much bigger than your child or or my child, Um, once in a while, they'll do something that, like, it kind of hurts, and you're like, that's annoying, and I'm I'm upset, like, and I looked at him, I'm like, dude, why, why'd you hit me? That hurt, and he immediately just turned away and, like, started doing something else, so then mama bear jumps in, because that's not okay with her, or me, and says, Silas, you need to apologize. And he says, I'm too tired. (laughs) And then we both get on him now, and we say, Silas, you need to to apologize. 
you need to confess what you did. And he said, I can't remember. He said it was six seconds ago. <laughs> you can't remember what happened six seconds ago? It's too hard. And he has all these excuses. And finally, he apologizes, but he was looking in the opposite direction. And we said, no, you've got to mean it from your heart. And it just goes on all the time in our house. We're analyzing this little boy's confessions, trying to find out, is his heart right? Is he doing it right? What does it look like? What's it supposed to look like? And all the time, I find Tara and I analyzing um, and, and trying to pry apart what is happening when this little boy confesses. Does he mean it? Does he not? And yet I wonder how many of us, when we confess to God, if we do confess to God, um, just do it flippantly. And we don't think much about it. And we're looking the opposite way. And we say, oh yeah, God, I'm sorry for these things that I did. And there's a father in heaven looking down saying, do you mean it? Do you care? Do you know what you're even saying? Are you putting any thought into it? And so tonight, that's what we're going to do. We're going to put some thought into it. We're going to pull back as a church, as a small group of believers. And we're going to see what, in Nehemiah chapter 9, the community, the Israelites, can teach us about confession. Now, um, heads up, big picture context, they had the words of God, they had the, the word of God taught to them in chapter 8 by Ezra, and they didn't know a lot of this stuff about their history. They'd been in exile for 70 years. They've had all kinds of stuff going on. The Babylonians conquered them, then the Persians uh, conquered them. They were in exile, and they finally come back. They rebuild the wall. They're still working on the temple, but Ezra, this priest, comes, and Nehemiah, the governor, is there, and they have this big old 30,000 to 50,000 person revival where the word of God is spoken, the law of Moses is spoken, and they're just blown away by it. And so we talked in a, a couple weeks ago about what it's like um, when, when we dig into the Word of God and things we need to know about the Bible. And then we talked more about that last week, about how it requires action. When you hear the Word of God, you don't just hear it and do nothing about it, but it requires action. And so now a couple weeks have passed in the story. And we're going to find out, um, we're going to find out six things about confession. And in this um, there's all kinds of good stuff. So let's jump on in. Nehemiah chapter 9. I'm not going to read the whole chapter for you because that would take quite a long time. We'll do that as we walk through it. So we'll just go verse by verse. We'll stop the first five verses. We'll stop uh, probably four times. And then uh, the rest of the verses are essentially one big prayer. Actually, the longest prayer in the Bible. This is how this chapter is usually preached by preachers. Is It's um, just talked about as the longest prayer. But... Um, I wanted to see the context around it, so I'm going to preach it just a little bit different. It says in verse 1, Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with the earth on their heads. The first thing we see is that confession requires prep work. Confession requires prep work. So some important things here. It says, now on the 24th day of this month, remember the first day of that month, which for us would be October 8th. So this is essentially uh, the very end of October into November, our time. But for them, this was uh, the first day was that holy convocation where they all came together, six hours of Bible reading, and they all weeped. And then they had, uh, the next day started the um, feast or the festival of the tents. Remember, they all got in tents to remember the Passover and how they were out. They didn't have a home in the wilderness. And it's a joyous time. And the leader said, be joyful. And then um, after that ends, which was just a couple days before this, now they go back to mourning, to being somber, to putting on sackcloth and earth on their heads. It says that they were 
fasting. So fasting is, right, not partaking in, in physical food to remind us that we need to be dependent on God for the spiritual food that we ultimately live by because we don't just live on bread alone, but the very words that come out of God's mouth. And so they're fasting. They're uh, wearing sackcloth. This is what they would do when they would mourn sin. This is what they would do when they would mourn uh, death in the Jewish community. And so spiritual death and physical death elicited the same response. They would, uh, priests would tear their clothes. Uh, Jews would wear sackcloth, and it was essentially a burlap sack. So um, I don't know, maybe that's trendy today, Um, but that's what they would do. And it was not um, probably super good looking back then, um, as it probably isn't today. Um, and it says, and, the, and with earth on their heads, so they would mark their heads with earth, uh, sometimes ash, sometimes just dust, but it was dirt. It was a way of humbling themselves and showing like we came from dirt, we're going back to dirt. And so these are all things that they would do when there was physical death, physical mourning going on in the community. And God says, do the same stuff when you have spiritual death, when you realize that you guys are spiritually dead um, without me. And so they heard the word of God spoken and they're going through this mourning phase, right? Um, Because they realize our ancestors have really jacked up and we have neglected God for a long, long, long time. So the big idea is before we even hear about them confessing their sins in this big, long prayer, uh, they take a posture of humility. They do some prep work. They realize it's not just flippant. We're not just going to confess, but it says, like, we prepared our hearts for this. And they, they took time, and they did this, and they physically looked like they were about to confess, and they, they, they prepped their hearts. What does it look like for you when you confess, whether it be to um, someone that you've sinned against or God? Like, do you do it without thinking? Do you just say, oh, I made a mistake, and you quickly do it, and you just get it over with? Like you're taking a, getting a shot from the doctor or something? Like, oh, let's just get this over with quick. Or do you put some time into it? Do you think about it? Do you ask yourself hard questions like, why did I sin? And is this habitual? Is there, are there other action steps that I need to take? How's the other person feeling? This isn't just about me getting something off my chest so I can somehow feel better about the situation. Is there other healing that needs to take place? Do I need to do more than confess? What's going on behind the scenes in my own heart, in their heart? Is God wanting to talk to me and heal me? Because ultimately, here's the thing about confession, is just like prayer in general, it's not like God needs it. We need it. Like God's not caught off guard uh, when you confess a sin to him. He knows your heart. He knows our sins. And so what happens is when we confess, it's us um, saying, okay, God, we're going to give ourselves to you. We're not just going to give, us, give you the good stuff, our, our, our praises. We're going to give you even the wicked stuff. Like we're opening our hearts. And when we open our hearts to God, he does a healing work. He teaches us truth. He, he lets us know what's really going on, the condition of our souls, the condition of our lives. Whether this be when you first come to faith and it's salvation or even in the daily life of a believer, confession plays a huge role because it reminds you, like, man, God wants to keep doing a work in me, and I need, I need some pretty continual healing spiritually because it's easy to get off track. You've got to till up the soil in your heart. Otherwise, when God speaks to you, if you don't have a lifestyle of confession, you won't receive much of what he has to say because it's by nature humbling. Last night, before we went to bed, um, Tara and I, we were, we were talking again, and... Silas, um, 
started wrestling with me. And so we wrestled back and forth and it was just kind of spontaneous, um, off the cuff. And then I got done and I sat back down in the chair and he said, dad, can we wrestle? And I said, well, we could wrestle or we could play lions, which lions is basically just wrestling with growling. But apparently to him, it's way better. And so, um, he said, let's play lions. And so instead of just like kind of randomly, hey, let's wrestle, he just lit up and he's like, let's play lions. And then I said, okay, let's do this. And so I got down on my knees and he said, whoa, 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 whoa. let's wait, let's wait. He said, um, there's two lions behind you, dad. There's a mama and a baby and you have to protect them. And then, um, mom, she's my mama lion and I'm the baby, but I'm going after you and I'm trying to get over there. And he had all these rules. And he said, we have to have three rounds because you pin each other and that's how you win the game of lions. And then you got to get up and do this over again. And he had all this laid out and there's rules. And you've been there, right? When you're on, um, when you're playing as a kid and there's just a few of you and you're at recess and uh, it just feels like you're just kind of stumbling, bumbling through recess. And then one of you says, Ooh, I know a game. And then you start putting together the rules. And you're like, well, here's what we got to do. And you make up a name for the game because no one's ever heard of it. And on the spot, like everyone gets excited. And why do they do that? Because kids in elementary school and my little four-year-old boy all know that oftentimes in life, things of value require a little prep work. Things that are going to be really good require pulling back and saying, okay, if we're going to do this, we're going to do this. And with believers, so it is with confession. We don't just flippantly run into it. We think about it. We recognize God's doing something in us. We're not just, this isn't uh, some sort of um, guilt-driven work that we're doing to get right with God as much as it is God trying to make this right. And so we don't just get through it. We pull back, we take our time, and we do some prep work. We ask hard questions, we pray, we abide in Christ, we spend some time, and we make it part of our lifestyle. What does that look like for you? Verse number two says, And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities, or the sins, of their fathers. The second thing we see is that confession demands responsibility. It demands responsibility. Someone's got to be held accountable. In a day and age in a society where no one wants to be to blame, everyone wants to be a victim, we realize in Christianity someone is a victim, and it ain't always you. That we have victimized God. Even though he can hold his own, we've sinned against him. And there's no doubt you've been sinned against as we've sinned against others. But people got to take responsibility for their actions. You've got to tell the truth about what's really going on when you confess. And it says a couple things that go against the societal norm for us and for them. It says, number one, that they, as the Israelites, separated themselves from all foreigners. Now, this wasn't because they were thinking they were better than everyone else. This is what God had commanded in the law of Moses, that they would be separate from them. And whenever you see revival uh, or renewal um, or repentance in the Israelite community, you always see this, that even those who are intermarried with others, um, they, they pull back with, from other nations. And now at this point, they had been mingled with other nations for a couple hundred years and people would leave like families would break up often um and we don't know the extent of what happened in this particular verse but they said we got to get away we got to get away because here's the thing when you gel if you got something that's clean and something that's dirty um and they're going to get together either someone's got to be made clean or someone's going to get dirty And, and there's a huge difference 
between um, God's people mingling with others because we want the good news to be good news for them or they want the bad news to become bad news for us. Like, if that makes sense, there's a huge difference. Um, just like if you and I went to hang out with folks that we knew um, we might be called to reach, but they're maybe a rough crowd, someone's going to influence someone. And what God had planned for the Israelites is that they would be a nation set up on a hill in Jerusalem, that they would be a light shining to the other nations, that the other nations would want to be a part of them because of their holiness, not that the Israelites would want to be part of the other nations because of their wickedness. Does that make sense? There's a huge difference. You can intermingle in two completely different ways. Because a lot of these other nations came and became proselytes. Um, They joined um, in the Jewish faith because they wanted to be a part of it. So you don't water down your faith to be a part of a crowd. But you can be in the crowd if uh, the crowd comes to Jesus. Um, We could spend a lot of time unpacking that, but I won't. so they were set apart from foreigners, which is a big deal. But then here's probably the weirder part. It says they stood and confessed. So here's the context of all this, this whole chapter. Confess their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. So they're not, just, they're not just saying, well, we have done wrong. They're saying generations before us have done wrong. Have you ever been um, uh, at home when you were a kid? And one of your brothers or sisters did something wrong, and mom or dad comes in and, and says, who broke the lamp? Or who did that? And you're pointing at each other, and you're thinking to yourself, because if you didn't do it, you're thinking, you've got to be kidding me. There ain't no way I'm going down for what you did. And then you got this big fight, because you're saying, well, you did it. And they're like, no, you did it. And you're looking at them like, don't you do this to me. Or you've been at work, and you had a coworker do something stupid, but you knew this is going to impact all of us. Or you've been playing on a sports team, and you realized one of you mouthed off to the coach, but everyone's got to run wind sprints. How'd that make you feel? Or you're sitting in the classroom and one punk kid cheats on a test so everyone loses. The teacher goes off on everyone. How's that make you feel? Like everything in us says, no, I'm not taking the blame for other people. I don't even want to take the blame for my own life. We spend a lot of time trying to avoid taking responsibility for our own life. How much more do we want to avoid taking responsibility for other people? But we've got to understand this, and this is a completely foreign concept to us in America. We might not think it is, but it is. Um, confession is not just individualistic. It's communal. Confession is from a people. When God looks down on humanity today, he sees you individually, but he sees you as part of the church. And so we have done our best in America to talk about us as individuals. But God, all throughout his word, speaks to a people. And so the Israelites weren't just a group of individuals. They were a people. And the church today isn't just a group of individuals. We are a people. And so you've got to get good if you're going to follow Jesus. And not just taking responsibility for your own sins, but even the people around you. And as Christians, we don't often do that. We want to separate from the people around us, but we don't want to take responsibility for the sins of the people around us. It's like someone complaining about this nation and saying, well, I know I live in America and enjoy all the blessings, but there's a bunch of problems and it's everyone in the White House. No, like we're all part of the problem. Or I like my local church. I mean, for the most part, I don't like all the stuff that they do. As a matter of fact, I don't like how the pastors are doing this one thing and some of the people, they do this other stuff. And, and are you in or are you out? You can't speak of God's church, whether we're talking to the local body or the whole thing, as if you're on the outside and yet claim to be on the inside. 
you got to take responsibility. You got to say, you know what? I don't like what's happening, but I got to help be part of the solution. I got to take responsibility. It happens all the time. About a year ago, we were in a restaurant, and um, sometimes you understand the mistakes of your kids, and you just understand that's part of it. Other times, your kids make mistakes that just make you shake your head and say, please, for five minutes, for five minutes, could I just avoid all responsibility and, and maybe just disown you? Just, a, just five minutes here. We're in a restaurant. And you know when you're in a restaurant and you have to slip into a booth and you have kids, um, do the kids sit on the outside or do they sit on the inside? The inside, right. Because it's like their own little prison. You say, this is the only way we're going to enjoy this food is if you are in a prison, a box. And I can't physically put you in a box because it's not socially acceptable, but I can make you sit on the inside. And so you make them sit on the inside. And in general, it's okay unless they go under the table. And they often do. They, um, they got to pick something up that's nasty. They got to kick their shoes off. They got to drop their fork or something. But then one of these things, and, and people who own restaurants think that this is convenient, but this is, this is just horrible for people with young kids, is that little um, set of, you know, salt and pepper and all the jams and the napkins and all that. They're supposed to be super convenient for you right there, but that's the only toys that your kids have, right? Even if they have the crowns and all the stuff to draw on, it doesn't matter because they just want the stuff they know they shouldn't be messing with. Tara and I were talking. I can't even remember. Well, I wouldn't tell you the name of the restaurant for two reasons. Number one, I, I genuinely can't remember. And number two, you would never go back there, and I don't want to hurt their business. And we look over in the middle of this conversation. Silas takes the salt shaker and he licks that thing right across. Like not just a little peck, not just a little Woody the Woodpecker. Like, oh, hit it on my lip. Oh, my arm scraped the top of it. Nothing that you could like with a clear conscience turn your eye from and say, eh, whatever, it'll be all right. No, like convicted to your core, we have to say something because this is disgusting. And so as the waiter or waitress came up and I was in that five minutes of not wanting to take <laughs> responsibility for my family, I, I had to look at him and say, um, oh, by the way, I just, I just wanted to give you a heads up. My, <laughs> my son licked um, Lick the top of the salt shaker. So you're probably going to want to want to do something with that. And all you, there's no there's no good explanation. There's no like, well, it was kind of part of the deal, and so someone's bound to do it at some point. There's no way to explain it other than I'm sorry. <laughs> we are who we are, and I'm ashamed of who we are, but I have to confess it. But see, that's what you got to do as a dad of a family. You got to say, listen, one of us makes a mistake. I'm the one accountable. I'm the one responsible. A pastor does it for a church. You do it because you know this isn't just, you can't just skate through life at best taking, you know, responsibility for your own actions. You've got to be part of something bigger and recognize you are in the church and take responsibility for even the people around you. Because ultimately, we're going to be held accountable. You've got to know that confession and responsibility go hand in hand. Otherwise, they mean nothing. Responsibility is to confession ultimately what a transmission would be to a car. If you drop that transmission out of that car, on the outside it might look good, but on the inside it's hollow. You're not going anywhere and you're not going to change. And if you have a pattern in your life of saying, God, I know I've sinned against you, or 
fellow man, coworker, woman, wife, husband, whatever it might be, I've made this mistake, but in your heart you're thinking, but it's mostly you and it wasn't me. Ain't nothing going to change in your sinful heart. You've got to take responsibility if you want change. Number three, I can tell this is a fun, this is a fun one tonight. Um, verse three, and says, And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. So that'd be for them in the Jewish calendar, that'd be about three hours. And then for another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. The third thing we see is that confession is a part of worship. Confession is a part of worship. And I won't spend much time talking about this, but I'll simply say this. Um, We like to put confession in its own little box. But it's part of a bigger picture plan of worship. And like I said earlier, um, it's not... It's obviously easy when we come and we sing songs and we say, well, that's part of worship. Why? Because we're giving God our praises. But God wants our heart. He even wants our sin. And that's why you could argue, you could argue that confession is a deeper-rooted, bigger part of worship than most other things we do. Because it's not just giving the good of yourself to God. It's giving all of yourself to God, even the not-so-good. There's healing in it. Make it part of your daily routine. As Christians, um, we confess. We don't have the guilt of thinking we have to confess nonstop. We could never confess for every sin we ever made. But we recognize it's part of a healthy spiritual life. That we don't want to bottleneck our soul with uh, sins, feeling like the connection between us and God is slowing down because we keep doing wrong, but we never bring it up in prayer. We don't talk about it. We don't acknowledge it. It's part of worship. So don't rush confession. They um, they spent three hours, not only hearing the word taught, but three hours in worship and confession. How many of us have spent more than like 30 seconds <laughs> confessing sin? So say, well, I don't want to think about it too much because then I'll just have a pity party. I'll just be downtrodden. No, as we're going to talk about in a bit, there's a beauty to confession. Um, That's not just a pity party. But it's a crock pot process. It's not a microwave fix. And so let let it sit a little bit. Think about what it means. Think about what you're doing. We're going to be taking the Lord's Supper, not this Sunday, but the following Sunday. And when we do so, Um, it's going to be tempting for you when there's a bunch of people around to take that bread, to take that juice, and to pray a quick prayer, and then take it. But even with all those people around, examine your heart. Examine your heart before you even come to church that day. Um, Spend some time thinking about your sin, about His righteousness, about how good the cross is. Number four, confession redirects praise. It redirects praise. It says, On the stairs of the Levites stood, and then it's going to list all these names. On the stairs, um, it says in, in the second temple, um, which was partially built at this point by Ezra, um, they had basically 15 stairs uh, 
on the outer courts that they would, the Levites would often sing here. And the Levites here are basically the worship leaders. Um, we don't know exactly if that's what they're referring to or what stairs they're talking about, but um, it could be a reference to, to the temple. Stood Jeshua, Bani, Cadmiel, Shebaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Shaniah. And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Cadmiel, Bani, Hashabaniah, Sherebiah, you see some of the same names because these are um, potentially the same people but just doing different things. Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. Number four, confession redirects praise. You ever hear people say, Bless the Lord? Even that song that we sing, Bless the Lord, oh my soul, bless the Lord. You ever think, like, what in the world? What can, how can I bless God? Like, how does a human bless God. I can bless like another human. I can give you resources, money, love. I can do something for you. How do we bless God? Well, God has everything. He owns everything, but he gives humans free will. And when we bless him, it's because we're ultimately giving part of ourselves, knowing that we only have our value. We're only redeemed in him. But when we give our praise to him, by free will, we're choosing to praise him. We're blessing him. Sounds odd, but we're giving him something that if we didn't let come out of our mouths, out of our hearts, he wouldn't otherwise get. And so it redirects our praise. Here's the big, big idea. These leaders, all these leaders, they do something huge here. If this was 2018 in our culture, I don't know if it goes down like this. I mean, think about it. They're about to pray this big, long prayer about God's awesomeness and their sin. How many of us, if we were in this point, would be making excuses? Instead of just saying, you know what? Let's bless the Lord. Let's all get together. We cried out to God, and now I'm telling you, let's stand up, and after a six-hour worship service, we're going to praise God. How many of us would be like, you know what? Six-hour worship service, little overkill. Little overkill, guys. Like, how long do I need to be sorry for these things? And it was our forefathers. It wasn't even us. Pretty sure we could go home now and be all right. Like that's what our culture does. Our culture loves to look for excuses. We love to justify our sin. That's why the theology of many churches and denominations is changing. Because when we don't want to align with God, we try to get God to align with us. And so we justify our sin. We say, maybe I'm not wrong. Maybe God's wrong. Maybe I'm not off. Maybe his word is a little off. Maybe I didn't misinterpret it. Maybe you misinterpret it. So we start to question things. But I love it. They don't. They just say, let's praise God. Let's just go straight to it. Let's just tell the truth. We're wicked. And let's tell the truth that he's awesome. We've got a praise problem. Our society has a praise problem. We tend to praise the wrong things. We know um, for many of us, we see that whoever has the most stuff wins. Whoever has the nicest cars, the nicest house, right? It's all a climb up the, the ladder. The American dream we, we um, know inherently is not bad in and of itself. It's good that you have freedom to do stuff. But um, we, we exalt, we celebrate stuff and things in an unhealthy way in our culture. We celebrate um, and praise not just stuff. We praise the wrong people. 
We have celebrities, people that we have put on pedestals that show no character traits that would honor God, behavior that would honor God, hearts that would honor God, who speak out against God, and yet we put them on a pedestal because we love their talent. We love something about them. We want something about them. And so we praise the wrong things. We praise the wrong people. We praise the wrong motivations. Many of you know my story, getting in a fight in high school, smacking someone in the noggin, going to jail. What many people don't know is three months before I smacked this dude in the noggin in shop class, in which case it was obviously wrong and everyone knows, well, that was horrible. Uh, I'm sitting in a locker room Friday night after Friday night with coaches saying, get back out there and we got to rip their heads off and we got to tear them apart. You got to get angry. And that's what all the kids hear. When you're an 18 year old boy, you're impressionable. But hey, it was for the sake of the football team, right? But we know it's obviously not okay to rip people's heads off. But in locker rooms all across the country here for the next three months, it's going to be told and promoted and be the motivation of many kids who got all kinds of issues in their hearts. And the coaches are saying, I'm going to help you heal, boy. You go out and take it out on them on the football field. And we wonder why there's so many concussions and injuries and jacked up people who stay jacked up. We praise the wrong motivations. Then we blame kids when they take that off the football field. We praise the wrong God. People say that we live in a godless society. We don't live in a godless society. We just think we're God. We praise ourselves. That's why the bookstores are filled with self-help books, because if we have flaws, most of us um, in America think, well, the answer is that you just need to be a better you. You need to be a better self, and you can be better, and here's some self-help books. So we have talk shows built around it, books built around it, conferences books built around it, even religions built around it. Unfortunately, some churches have started to be built around it. And then the Bible comes with a message that's completely foreign to people who praise the wrong things, the wrong people, the wrong God. The Bible says, you know what, you don't just need a better you, you need a new you because you're spiritually dead. And so I want you to lose yourself. And when you deny yourself, you can have life in Christ, you can gain life in Christ, but you've got to lose yourself. And our society says, that doesn't sound right. I just need a better me. And you think about kids going back to school right now, and we hear all the stories, right? Some of them are going to have bullies, and the bullies are going to tell them, you're horrible, and they're going to say wicked things, whether it's online or in person, and they're going to tell these kids things that no kids should hear, and they're going to hear about how terrible they are, and we know the stories of kids committing suicide, those who go into depression, those who are taking meds at a young age because their self-esteem is ripped apart by the opinions of others their age. And on the flip side, some of those same kids are going to have teachers and people who mentor them and pull them aside and say, no, you're awesome. You're not terrible. You're amazing. And you can do whatever you want to do. And you've got to reach for the stars. Who's right? Who should they listen to? Is one simply the positive of the other's negative? Because they don't know what to do with the Bible. They don't know what to do with even confession. Because it's hard to confess that I am wrong, and yet I understand I'm loved because he's holy. That I can at the same time be loved even though I'm not perfect. Our society doesn't preach that. It doesn't know Christ. And so we grow up and we don't understand how to confess to God. Because something in us says, well, if I admit to my sin, I'm either saying that I have no good, I'm not valuable, I'm a horrible, wicked human being, I got no value whatsoever. 
because that's what a bully would say, right? That's what we grew up thinking. Or we don't want to give God praise in our confession because we want to build ourselves up and say, maybe I'm not so bad. Maybe I'm not so bad. But Christians know I can go and say, I am a sinner. I am broken. And if it wasn't for Christ, I wouldn't have value. But because it is of Christ, I do. And I'm redeemed. And I'm a new creation. And I don't need a better self. I need a new self. I need a new creation with a spiritual heart that's alive, not dead. And I can't manufacture that myself. Only God can. And through the cross and through God's Holy Spirit, he does that. Sometimes we need reminders um, of reality. Some of us say to ourselves, um, <coughs> some of us say, if I was those Israelites, because I read all these stories about how jacked up they are, I wouldn't act like them. Tara and I, on the, back, on the way back from one of our trips, um, we stopped at that travel center um, on I-70. It's around Lawrence. Uh, there's like a Pizza Hut and a McDonald's, a bunch of stuff all together. We were in line, and I saw this young couple, kind of hipster, and they were about to order, but the guy, he was a little bit shaky, and he was looking around, and I could tell he needed something. I thought, well, the bathrooms are there. I didn't know, what, like, why was he looking like this? But he, he obviously was looking for something, and um, he went over to the ice um, machine with the soda fountain and there's all these you know little deals to get your soda or whatnot and the big old thing in the middle where you can push and get ice in a cup but he didn't have a cup he hadn't ordered yet he was just standing in line and he um he pushed it and he looked around continuously to see if anyone was looking and i was standing behind him and he put a bunch of ice in his hands he started scrubbing his hands started washing his hands (laughs) that was weird and then he took some of the ice, starts washing his neck. The old boy starts washing his face. There's like an old trucker behind him, just looks angry. I look at the trucker guy, and he looks at me, and he's just angry. And he says, how old is this kid? And, you know, because the bathrooms to wash your hands were just, like, not very far away. And I was just chuckling. But what made me chuckle the most was he had on the back of his shirt, in big block letters, you know the old Nike slogan, this is how we do it? He, he said, this is how we Jew it. He was obviously a young Jewish fellow. And everyone's watching him <laughs> wash his hands with ice and wash his face with ice when there's this tons of people. I mean, there's tons of people all around. And he's got his shirt that says, this is how we Jew it. And I'm chuckling to myself thinking, is not this a microcosm of the whole Old Testament of people who can make smarter decisions and do things right, but continuously do goofball things and find themselves in this pattern of just doing goofball things. This is how we do it. Yes, this is how we do it. The whole Old Testament is this, and you're a microcosm of it. And it was just a little bit silly. He didn't need a better self. The old boy needed a new self. He didn't need just some manners. The dude needs Jesus. All right. We've got a few more minutes. but We've got a bunch of verses to read through here. Verses 6 to 38 are all one big prayer. And so this is a prayer um, that you'll see in some form or fashion all throughout the Old Testament. When prophets come, they remind the Israelites of the whole history. And you're going to see two things stand out. And so I want to see if you can find them. It says this. You are the Lord, you alone. 
You have made heaven the heaven of heavens with all their host, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host is heaven of heaven worships you. That'd be the angels. You are the Lord, the God of the God who chose Abram and that'd be Abraham and brought him out of Ur to the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you, and you made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite, and you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. So that's Abraham's section. Now Moses. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all the servants and all the people of his land, for you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land. And you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud, you led them in the day and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them rights and rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses, your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the, out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in and possess the land that you had sworn to give them. But they... There's different sections. Here kicks off another. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies. You and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. And you did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. Here's another section. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven. That was the promise to Abraham. And it's fulfilled. And you brought them to the, into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land. And you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land and the Canaanites and gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn. Vineyards, olive gardens, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Here's another section. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast their cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. This is all a prayer, remember? Quite a prayer. Verse 27. Therefore you gave them into the hand of your enemies of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and they heard from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. So we're talking judges now, the time of judges. But after that, they had rest. 
They did evil again before you and abandoned you to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard them from heaven. And many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. So this is kings and all that goes with it. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through the prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the land. So this is the exile, the Assyrians, 722, the Babylonians, 587. Nevertheless, in, the, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them for you are a gracious and merciful God verse 32 now therefore our God the great the mighty and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us upon our kings our princes our priests our prophets our fathers and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day you have been righteous in all that has come upon us for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly our kings our princes our priests and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings and that you gave them even in their own kingdom and amid their great goodness that you gave them and in the large and rich land that you set before them they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works behold we are slaves this day because they're even persia is still over them and they're having to pay lots of taxes even though the persians let them come back to jerusalem in the land you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves, and its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us, Persians, because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. Okay, number five. Confession reminds us of our wickedness and God's faithfulness. Our wickedness and God's faithfulness. So one long prayer, and you see the whole history, a couple thousand years of Israelite history from about 2100 BC to that time in uh, 440 BC. All this takes place. Abraham, Moses, the exiles, all that stuff. And you see ultimately two things, two things in here. What do you think those two things are? Pretty easy. See, our wickedness and God's faithfulness. It's best summed up, I think, by verse 33. It said, Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us. For you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. The same pattern over and over and over and over. Do you ever feel that pattern in your life? God is good, but I'm wicked. I keep screwing up. I keep making the same mistakes. God keeps bailing me out. God gives me more. I, I get angry at God sometimes, but then I come around. Now God's, uh, I see God's faithfulness, and now I repent, um, but then I keep making more mistakes. And sometimes the mistakes change, but then I make other more mistakes, and then I keep going, and some are habitual, and some are, but I keep making mistakes, and God's faithful. You see that over and over and over. It wears you out, doesn't it? It wears you out. But here's the beauty of this. Oh, I, lo I love this. I love this. We have a new type of confession. You see, it would be bad news if the only type of confession we had is that of our sin. But Christians and the Israelites for thousands of years had a second type of confession. This is the declarative confession. This is God's faithfulness. He's righteous. Yes, I'm confessing that I'm wicked, but I'm also confessing how good he is. And this is an incredibly important thing for you because you get to choose which one you're going to rest in. And there's Christians 
leaving a whole bunch on the table every day when they come to church and they hear the good news of Jesus, but they can only sit in the bad news of their sin. We have the right to recognize we are bad news, but he is good news. And together, we can rest in the good news that we are reconciled to God through the cross. This is... This is why confession is so big in the lives of believers. Because many of us minimize the power of the cross and we don't realize it. You ever play that game with your kids or maybe your kids played it where uh, the couches and stuff in the living room were the safe zone, but everything else was lava. You ever do that? And they had to jump from one thing to another. And it was nice and convenient when they could jump. Um, See, back when I was a kid, we had like the 1970s shag red carpet. So it really did look like lava. It was very fun but if i hypothetically as an adult were playing a similar game and i wanted to get from one chair to the other if i wanted to bridge the gap would it be very hard if between these two chairs i was going to bridge the gap do you think i could do it physically yeah I, I, i could sit man i could do i could do it in a whole variety of ways it would not be that hard what about if the chairs were like this would bridging the gap be that hard? No, I could do it. What if it was like this far? Do you think I could do it? It'd be fun to watch. I won't try it. It'd be entertaining. It'd be a good way to cap things off. I'd have to confess to the ER doctor what I was doing. No, you see, when I separated these two, you realized it was going to take not just a natural power, a supernatural power. This is why confession is huge in you and your view of the cross every day as a Christian. Because if over here is the wickedness of humanity and over here is the holiness of God, you have got to push the two to absolute extremes because that's the reality of the two. As far as the east is to the west is is his thoughts and his ways above ours. And we got to recognize, you know what? This world is broken. And I'm never going to minimize or diminish the reality that wickedness is wicked and evil is evil. And I am a sinner. I'm not going to be okay with my sin. I'm not going to justify my sin. I'm not going to come to church until I feel better about my sin. The more I grow in Christ, the more I'm going to realize, no, I am wicked and wicked is wicked. And then I'm going to see God's holiness and I'm going to realize he wasn't as holy as I once thought. He's holier than I once thought. He is so holy. I can't even fathom how holy he is. He's so holy that if this one and this one get together without Jesus in the middle, one of them is going to die and it ain't God. And the more you grow in Christ, the more you realize these two things, the wickedness of man and the holiness of God, are incredibly separated. And when you confess on a daily basis, it's going to remind you of your sin. But because because we, like the Israelites, remember his faithfulness, then we're going to have a bigger view of the cross because you're going to realize the only thing that can bridge this gap is a supernatural thing. And it's Jesus becoming man and dying. And what many of us do when we don't confess on a regular basis is we don't think that our sin's that bad because we don't talk about it, we don't think about it, we don't even like to hear about it. And therefore, we don't ever find ourselves declaring in our confession the goodness of God. We hear a preacher talk about it, but it's not in our own prayers, and so we forget just how awesome and holy he is. And so then, we don't need a very big cross to bridge the gap. This this might be why your life isn't changing very much. Because you don't think it needs to change that much. But as for me and my house, we're going to make sure we always remember 
through confession of our sin and his holiness, that there is a huge gap between the two. And so when I see Jesus, I'm going to be blown away at what he's done on the cross. That's why confession is so good. Last but not least, we'll make this quick. Number six, confession gives us hope. Confession gives us hope. Verse 38 is the very last and is actually almost essentially the first verse of the next chapter because it it is the context for uh, what we're going to see in chapter 10. It says this in verse 38. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. Gives us hope. Let me ask you this. Do you think this covenant... Let's get together. We have remembered our sin and we've remembered God's holiness. Let's commit to not be punks anymore. Let's commit to not be sinners. Let's commit to not rebel against God. This has been done in the Old Testament. How long did it last? Well, we just read in that prayer. (laughs) It didn't last very long. They rebelled again. And for these old boys right here, do you think it lasted? No, it didn't. Because 400 plus years later on a cross, a man named Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And these old boys right here became ancestors, just like their fathers were to them, of people who would be in a rebellious people. And it's the religious leaders 400 years later wanting Jesus to die on a cross. Our hope does not come from our confession Our hope comes from the confession of Christ where he says, I am the way, the truth, the life. When he says, I am the bread of life. I am the door. When he says, I am, I am. Our hope is not in us as sinners confessing our sin. It's that Jesus came down and said, I am God and I'm going to die and this temple is going to be rebuilt in three days. It's going to change everything for you. And in Luke 24, as he explains to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, he explains from the scriptures that it all pointed to him. Oh, it's the confession of Jesus declaring who he is that changes humanity and eternity for those who would believe. But I will say this as we close out. Um, confession leads us and points us to commitment because I know some of us we get tired of the pattern like why why do we keep doing what we're doing why I keep making the same mistakes I I, I don't even want to confess anymore and and you got to realize your confession again is remembering and reminding you of his faithfulness and it's admitting to your own sin but ultimately, it's you also saying, I'm not giving up. I'm not stopping. I'm not bailing. Every time I confess, it's me coming back to the Lord saying, God, I know who I am and I know who you are and I ain't stopping. I got I to gotta keep following. And by the power of his Holy Spirit, we can do it. This past week, uh, a couple days ago, you, you guys know we've been walking through the foster care process. And we knew when we got that call, it was going to come uh, quick. And we we're going to have to make a decision quick. Um, and so we got our license a couple of weeks ago and we were waiting for a few days. We're like, oh man, like we thought day one we'd get a child placed with us. Um, and about 6.30, uh, two or three nights ago, we got a call. So this little girl, little two-year-old girl, um, 
needs a home, needs a home tonight. You got a few minutes to decide. And she's going to be with you probably minimum three months, maybe a year, maybe forever. You just don't know. But it's going to be what they call a long-term placement. So it's not an overnight thing in that, um, yeah, when she comes, she's going to be there a while. So we said, can we talk about it? Tara and I looked at each other. I pulled Silas in. I said, buddy, what should we do? He said, we should help. I said, there's a little kid that needs help, doesn't have a home. Of course, the situation, we didn't know much about it, but like most of them, it wasn't good. And so we prayed about it, and we said, okay, let's go all in. Because we know when those words come out of our mouth, when we confess our commitment here, all in means all in. And there ain't going to be no take backs on this. And so we called back and we said, yep, we're all in. I said, okay. The kid was coming from about an hour away. I said, they'll call you right before they get there. So we ran around and we got to the house ready. We're like, this is happening. This is real. We got all ready. And we got a call. So they found another house closer to the town we came from. Sorry. But we, we don't need you now. So we looked at each other, said, okay, get ready for the next one. Anyone who's in foster care for a long time knows it can be overwhelming. Kids in your house, out of your house, in your house, out of your house. You're going to work with the system. You're going to work with lots of different people. And you're going to be disappointed in the flaws of other people. And they're probably going to be disappointed at times in your own flaws. But you keep saying, yeah, if you're all in, you're all in. Until God tells you, no, that's not the ministry anymore. And so that's what happens when you confess. You're putting your all in on repeat with God. And you're saying, I know who I am, but even better, God, I know who you are. And I'm all in. I'm going to come back next time. I'm going to recognize in Christ, I don't have to worry if I confessed a hundred times a day because it's not my sacrifice that gets me good with you. It's his sacrifice that does. So I'm going to freely confess when I know I've wronged you, when I've wronged others. And I'm going to remember your goodness. I'm going to remember my sins, but I'm going to put my all in when it comes to following you on repeat. And so I'm coming back. Let's pray. Father God, we